The first of which is one I'm uh, I'm really I'm curious to get into because this is one that we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now. Uh, there was a story that came out on CBC on March 13th, and it was about seclusion rooms being used in schools. I want to know if you're even familiar with this concept, Ched Nation. You can send a text if you've had some experience with these. I would love to hear from a parent and get that that perspective of what this does to a child. So seclusion rooms are essentially something that's supposed to to help mitigate bad behavior that's happening in a a classroom. Uh, But they've been used more and more here in Alberta over the last year. Why? Why is that? And are they are they effective or are they something that is cruel? The the image of what these look like look pretty archaic and look like they could be quite unkind to students. So we're going to get some perspective here and we're going to talk about exactly how much these are used, what they're used for, and what this does to to a child. So our guest is the assistant professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Alberta, Dr. Heather Brown. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a conversation, as I said, that we've been trying to get a voice on now for uh, for a couple of weeks, and people have been hesitant to speak on this. And I'm wondering if it's because this is not is not a comfortable conversation to have. This is something that doesn't look, at least to me as a parent, like a place I would ever want my child or any other child to end up. And, and I want to clarify here, uh, Dr. Brown, before we get into it, seclusion rooms were banned in Alberta in 2018 by the NDP government. Then yeah. reintroduced in 2019 after the UCP government took power. Now the data in terms of how much more they're being used this year could be a little bit skewed because obviously with COVID-19 and many students learning from home, uh, obviously they're not going to be put into these. But I want you to clarify that the data that we're seeing about an increase in the use of seclusion rooms is this an increase due to bad behavior or is this an increase due to kids not being in a classroom setting over COVID-19? Right. So right now we don't have enough data to say for sure that there's an increase. There, we have enough data to say that it does appear to be that there's an alarming trend that this year it appears to be that we're using these seclusion rooms more. But while there is that trend, we don't have enough data yet to say that it's a statistically significant increase. In other words, it could just be random error. So let's just put this into perspective and give a number out here for our listeners. So in the 2021-2022 school year, these rooms were used over 6,000 times across Alberta. Can you explain from from your perspective and from your your expertise what these are designed for? Right. Well, unfortunately, they're usually designed to support safety. And so basically, if you've become extraordinarily, if a student has become very dysregulated, they can be a harm to themselves, they can be a harm to the other students, and they, of course, can be harm to staff. And so when a student has reached that point where they're no longer safe, these rooms were designed to have a place for that student. So what happens when a child goes into a seclusion room? Are they just, is it like a timeout, but they're in an enclosed space? Because to me, the images that I'm seeing online of them look like a pretty archaic, almost like a locked cardboard box. 
Yeah, so there's many, many, many different versions of this. I mean, almost every school should have a, a like a sensory space, like a sensory zone, a meditation room. You know, even sometimes I know on campus here at U of A, we have uh, prayer rooms even. So just basically a quiet space so that if you've become really dysregulated, whether you're really sad or really upset or really angry, you have a place to go where you can, you know, basically try and support yourself to calm down. But that's not what a seclusion room is. A seclusion room is more where we're basically trying to lock the violent person away. Yeah, and I wonder if we're talking about, you know, self, self-soothing self for a child, if they even have those tools to be able to do that. This seems like being locked away and isolated would only increase that behavior. You're absolutely right. Like, who's going to calm down when you involuntarily are shoved into a right. small locked room? It's like being right? told like, to calm down. That's never going to work. <laughs> no, it's not going to work. The other problem with this is, like, if you look at people who have been, there's some research studies, people um, have said stuff like, when I get put in the seclusion room, I feel scared, angry, humiliated. Sure. I felt lost, completely lost, game over. I felt angry and animalistic, cage, cold. I felt treated like an animal, right? Like, those are not, if that's how you feel when you're put in that room, when I come out of that room, I'm not necessarily going to behave better. No, absolutely not. And, and let's just talk, let's, let's talk about what ages we're talking about here. Who is going into them? How long, how long are they spending in there? Well, no, you have to be really careful here because it, it, there's a lot of really, like, schools are not, they're not allowed to use these rooms in that way. And they're certainly not allowed to keep students in there for long periods of time. There's a lot of okay. different policies that they have in place. There are also even newer versions of this room where they don't even allow locks anymore, where you can just hold the door closed. But again, I'm not suggesting that these are good things to do. I'm just saying that we need to be careful and make sure that we're accurately describing what's going on. Right. And if you is there is there a, an age group that these tend to uh, to be used primarily for? I mean, are these in elementary, middle, high schools? Where do these where do these get introduced? I, where do they stop? Honestly, they're most often in um, schools where basically they're they're serving a population of people who have experienced significant trauma. And they're usually, if you've got, I don't know exactly, I can't speak to it completely, but essentially that's the kind of school where you're going to see them. Okay. I want to know what this indicates, if this just indicates an overall shortage when it comes to our education system and and just unavailable resources for for an educator who's obviously put in a position where they're trying to deal with not just one child that's showing problematic behavior, but also, you know, the other 29 or 34 or 39 students that they're trying to manage at the exact same time. And if if we're just seeing what is just an unfair position for an educator to be put in to try to deal with all of this all at once. I want to get your thoughts on that, but we do to take a little break. Dr. Brown, we'll be right back. We're talking about seclusion rooms and the use of them here in our province. We'll get right back into it. Are you familiar with seclusion rooms and the use of them in our schools here in Alberta? Ron sends a text in and says, my son to this day still describes the horrific treatment of being thrown into one of those rooms. They're basically a padded cell. And we're talking about this because there has been an increase in the use of seclusion rooms here in our province. Uh, Just to give you an idea of how many times these are being used, in 2021, in the 2021-22 school year, seclusion rooms were used 6,059 times across Alberta. And in the first four months of the current school year, seclusion rooms have been used 
2,700 times. So is this an acceptable form of mitigating disruptive behavior? Uh, We're talking about it right now with assistant professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Alberta, Dr. Heather Brown. Dr. Brown, thanks so much for hanging on hold. I mean, as you can see, our our listeners are texting and saying, look, I've got experience with these and they are horrific. So uh, I want to know, is this just um, a Band-Aid solution to an overstrapped school system that isn't able to deal with all of the issues that might come up in a day with different types of students and different types of behaviors? Definitely. I mean, there certainly has been a lot of cuts to education recently. Um, I mean, numerous teachers are experiencing burnout, and as a result, some of them just don't have the capacity to dedicate the time that they need to build the personal connection with our most vulnerable students. And so instead, this is often delegated to their assistants. And obviously, that's going to have a real impact on um, the ability of these students to be fully included in the classroom. Yeah. I wonder what the way forward is. I'm reading your your bio on the the U of A website, and uh, it says that you are an autistic professional who studies autism. So the way that you come at this is from a very unique personal perspective. Is this the way, at least when we're talking about autistic students, the way to handle behavior? No, not at all. <laughs> Never. I mean, all behavior is communication, right? Sure. And so if you're experiencing extreme distress and you're having this very dysregulated behavior, we generally see it for basically four main reasons. Either I'm extremely anxious, I'm overwhelmed by the sensory environment, you're repeatedly denying my autonomy, you're constantly on my case, you're constantly throat thwarting what I want to do, or I'm just really, really frustrated because I can't get you to understand what I'm trying to say. Hmm. And so if your needs are being constantly denied as unreasonable or not possible right now, the individual is only left with one way to communicate their distress, by escalating the behavior until someone is willing to take them seriously. You know, there are a few comments as we're having this conversation that I'm I'm wondering how how to, to put to you here. You know, someone saying, oh, I taught my children to be well-behaved at school. That's from Curtis. <laughs> Another one saying, um, if a child can't control their emotions and is a threat to themselves or others, that child should not be put in a seclusion room. They should be put in a cab and sent home to the parents that should address and correct the child's behavior. Teachers, <laughs> teachers are not there to raise the children. They're there to teach. What what do you say to that? Well, unfortunately, um, a lot of these behaviors, so uh, like many people with autism, I'm primarily hypersensitive to sensory input, which means that I experience many sensations as irritating, overwhelming, and stressful. And because my body seems to view so many sensory inputs as unthreatening and or so so many sensory sensations as unpleasant, and very threatening, my body goes into fight or flight with alarming regularity. The wonderful, horrible result is that the stress that I experience due to sensation makes my nervous system even more sensitive to incoming stressors, which means that my nervous system's in a state of hyperarousal and hypervigilance before I've even left the house for school. And the most crucial point here is that a lot of the behaviors that are targeted for treatment in autistic children would be considered normal reactions to extreme stress Mm. if our more quote-unquote extreme stressors were easier for doctors, parents, teachers, and everybody else to understand. 
I was going to drop the mic right there for you, Dr. Brown. What a great way to explain that to, I think, <laughs> let us all really understand exactly what that means and, and try to understand what that must be like to, to live with and then try to regulate your, your emotions and your behaviors on top of that. But, but let's, just, let's just back up a little bit because when we're talking about seclusion rooms, we're not talking about just the use of them for autistic children. We're talking about no, the use not. of them overall for all students and all behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. And behaviors, like I said, are just a form of communication. I mean, there's a really, really famous researcher. His name is Dr. Ross Green, and he has tons of videos, tons of books, blah, blah, blah. One of his favorite, famous lines is that, um, that I always love is he, he's, he'll say in one of his videos, so I have two very well-behaved children. Do you know what that makes me? And then every, he pauses, and everyone goes, lucky. because it's not like often the parents are doing their very best the teachers are doing their very best everyone's doing their very best but the the environment that this student is in is intolerable for that student for a number of different reasons Mm -hmm. and it's really about correcting the environment if we are pushing a child to the point where we're not recognizing their needs we're not recognizing their communication we're not giving them a chance to de-escalate or even do things that they enjoy and then they end up having a huge meltdown or a huge dysregulated behavior, that's a failure on us. That's a failure on us not creating an environment where that individual can thrive. And every time we use one of those seclusion rooms, we are failing those children. It might be necessary in that moment to protect everyone around them, but we have failed that child if they go into that room. Yeah, I think it indicates a larger problem that we need to get, I think, really real and address. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate your perspective on this. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course. Take care. That's Dr. Heather Brown. She's the assistant professor at the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Alberta. And we're talking about seclusion rooms and the use of them here in our province.